Small Business and Startup Stories DSM features conversations with small business owners who share both their victories and failures on their paths to success. Small Business and Startup Stories DSM is produced by the Greater Des Moines Partnership. More tips and resources are available at dsmpartnership.com slash smallbusiness. I am your host, Diana Wright. Welcome everyone back to Small Business and Startup Stories DSM podcast. Today with me is Bill Menner, and um, we're going to be talking about all things entrepreneurship, but in rural communities. And so um, first off, um, Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you. Nice to be heard, too. I appreciate it. And uh, and Bill is the founder of the Mentor Group. He currently serves as the executive director of the Iowa Rural Development Council um, and has quite a history, actually, working within rural development within communities all across Iowa, but even beyond with his current with his role within the USDA. Um, so, Bill, I want to kind of first talk about um, a lot of us come from small towns, myself included, um, and we have naturally seen, at least in Iowa, um, a lot of us move. And we might move to the big city, the big bad city of Des Moines, um, as we have seen a population growth here, but we cannot forget about our roots and, and the communities that um, you know are, are still um, growing and, and trying to also figure out ways in which they can grow more, right? And so um, today, I think it's important to talk about rural Iowa, but also can entrepreneurship be part of that solution and that equation? Um, So first off, could you first define what rural is to you? Well, defining rural to me is completely different from defining rural to, say, the government or to um, uh, an employer. You know, I grew up in a town of 13,000, which I always thought was a small town. Mm-hmm. It's, it's part of a faceless group of suburbs on the west side of Cleveland, Ohio. So even though there was agriculture in my town of 13,000, uh, there was no difference between it and the suburb next door on either side or to the south. Lake Erie was to the north. But, but I always thought that was rural. Uh, and then in 1990, I moved to Grinnell, Iowa and found that living in a town of 9,100, uh, which you would have thought would have been a lot like living in a town of 13,000, um, was vastly different. And that experience of living in a, a town surrounded by corn and beans, you know, 10 miles from the nearest other community was, was a change. Um, So I would define rural as a place that has a, um, um, almost like a, a, you know it if you see it. Mm -hmm. Um, At USDA Rural Development, the agency I used to lead here in Iowa, uh, there's something called rural in character. And it's a designation for a place where staff actually goes to visit an area that might be kind of close to a metro area. Grimes would be a good example of maybe 10 years ago, Grimes 10 years ago, rural in character. And it's a designation or an assessment that says, yeah, you're still, you still look rural. Uh, you know it when you see it, you know it when you go there, um, as opposed to, say, um, uh, Windsor Heights. 
Population-wise, they might be small, but there's nothing rural about Windsor Heights um, or Waukee anymore. So that definition of rural, yes, it's based on population in a lot of cases, whether it's 5,000 or 10,000 or 50,000. Um, I think the key is that you're not attached to a metropolitan area. Um, and that it's that proximity, that adjacentness. We're, we're having conversations within the Rural Development Council right now. We just awarded a grant to do um, some uh, soft cost support for the city of Bondurant. Bondurant is still in our mind rural, although it's not gonna be rural for long, but, but there are a lot of elements of Bondurant that are indeed still rural and, and the Rural Development Council wanted to support some of the planning work they're doing, uh, so we gave them a grant. I can't tell you if Bondurant is still eligible according to USDA standards, um, Altoona certainly is not, but but this rurality thing is a big deal, and and it's a big deal because if the government chooses to change or the Census Bureau chooses to change how we define rural and opens the door to a lot of bigger, more urban places, it makes it harder for the truly small rural places to compete for funds because they may not have a team of, of, of grant writers or may not have the capacity to go after dollars, whether at the federal or the state level. And if you have bigger places that are suddenly now considered rural, they may gobble up all the money, unless there are protections or, or things put in place to make sure that there's a set aside for really small towns. Mm -hmm. That's a really long answer to a definition of rural. But it's something, whether it's at the federal level that I was at for almost eight years, or as the advocate level for small towns, it is a, it's important. Mm -hmm. I love it. And I'm kind of glad that you actually talked about both sides there, whether that is the population or where it sits and what is next to that community. And so for me, I'm kind of interested, what do you think are the ingredients to a vibrant community? What does it need to have in order to pull people there, keep people there, and, and just making sure that, you know, it, it sustains in its livelihood. So you're from a small town. Mm -hmm. um, you know that old saying, which is if you've seen one vibrant small town, you've seen one vibrant small town. Every one of them's different. Um, but I think there are, there are things that are, they have in common, those places that are successful. Uh, and number one is they have a, a core of leaders. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean elected official leaders. It means they have folks that are driving the bus, whether it's the mayor or the city council or a, a group of business leaders or civic leaders. There are folks that have a vision or who want to develop a vision and want to move the community forward. So there's a leadership core, elected and otherwise. Um, I think they have infrastructure. Um, they have, um, and they don't, maybe it's not necessarily there at the start, but a desire to have a built environment, roads, bridges, housing. Um, they have a, some sort of a, a vibrant business community. Um, I mean, there are some vibrant small towns that don't have a whole lot of retail left anymore, um, but they still have a business culture to them. Um, and I think also that there is something to do. The idea of a third place, 
you have home, you have work, and then you have those third places. I think vibrant small towns have third places, whether it's a cafe um, or a pub or a recreation complex, uh, a school district. Um, those are all important elements. But again, not every small town is alike. So there may be a town that says, hey, we don't have housing. Uh, we don't have a business culture, but we've got other things that make us special. And that's where the leaders step in and they say, hey, we're going to take the assets that we have. We're going to develop a narrative around those assets um, and we're going to sell ourselves to folks. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, I know also growing up in a small town, um, it, change can be really difficult. And I like that you you brought up right away that you have to have core leaders that come to the table and decide that they need certain things, whether it's infrastructure or a culture of doing different and interesting things. Um, but how do you overcome in certain communities where maybe they might be more resistant to change? And and I know this is actually, it doesn't even matter if you're small or big community, this, this is just in life. But um, what have you um, seen that works in kind of changing that story and that belief system of a town? Again, lots of different um, ways to go. Uh, you know, we host the Rural Summit every year. It's coming up in April in Ames. Uh, and last year we had almost, almost 400 people show up. We try to promote change by showing folks what other places are doing. So to get them to say to themselves, huh, we need this. And we can just copy what they did in Community X that presented at the Rural Summit. So we try to show them templates for action that or demonstrate to them that yeah this town down the road did it why can't you we don't say that but we, what we want to do is demonstrate that similar sized similar placed communities are doing these things um and one way to to sort of encourage change is by you know that whole grass is greener kind of thing demonstrate that there are towns just like you doing different stuff and here's how it's working now that's some, that, that isn't a guaranteed to change uh, a resistance or aversion to change, um, but it may open the door. Um, some places they're, they're, there's zero interest and it's because the core leaders have zero interest in that. And there's nothing you can do to change it unless things bubble up from the community level, uh, from the civic leadership level. Um, but if you have a community that that wants to stay exactly the way they are, it's hard to change that. Um, even though it's not in their best interest, the evolution of a community has to has to happen. Um, and, and the resistance, if you're gonna push back against any sort of evolution or change or um, growth, um, it's hard. Um, and, and it's not in your best interest. I, I was doing some work um, for a county that wanted me to help them write a, a rural development plan for the smaller towns and the unincorporated areas in that county. And I went and met with all the, the county supervisors and with the city councils of each of the really small towns in that county. And one of the city councils, I asked if I could come speak to them and they said, nope, we're not interested. We don't want to grow. Um, so I don't know if that was a, we don't want to grow our population. We don't want to grow as a community, but it was, they were quite, quite frank. We, we don't need to talk to you because we don't want to grow. 
And I, I would equate that to saying we don't want to change. Mm-hmm. And so I guess kind of to that point, what are the trends if someone does not want to grow? Like talk about whether it's like setting the alarm, like what happens to small rural towns when, when there is a decline in that mindset or they don't have a growth mindset, let's just say that. Well, first off, I mean, just because your population is declining doesn't mean that you're doomed. Our rural populations in Iowa have been declining since the early 1900s. Um, there are communities that have gone away. They're ghost towns now because, because for whatever reason, and it may have been to, you know, through no fault of the residents and leaders of that town. Um, but, but at the same time, uh, the idea that you can shrink smart, and I know the folks at Iowa State are talking about that. In my mind, it, what they're doing is they're promoting basic community development practices. So I think you can shrink smart. I think you can grow smart. I think you can you can vision smart. And a lot of the elements of each of those is the same. You know, do are are we a welcoming place? Do we have options for housing? Do we have health healthcare and education? Um, do we have an entrepreneurial mindset where we encourage folks to um, start businesses? You know, I, I should have mentioned up front. Everyone always talks about rural America as being older and sicker and poorer. And, and for a lot of, you know, that's true. The average age is higher. Um, the, the prevalence of, of chronic disease is higher. Uh, the median household income is lower. But rural communities also have a higher prevalence of veterans. Uh, they have a higher prevalence of um, homeowners. And they have a higher prevalence of entrepreneurs. Um, and the idea that if you're in a small town and you have a business concept, it's pretty easy to start your own business in a small town. Um, the barriers to entry are lower. Um, access to capital might be harder. But at the same time, in a small town, you can forge out on your own um, and have a community that might be very receptive to helping support that. So, I mean, that rurality issue, both for the people and the places, and ultimately the businesses and the institutions and the anchors that make those small towns um, viable, um, have to be something. But if you don't have a core group of leaders thinking this way, um, it's hard to promote change. It's hard to make things happen. It's hard to look ahead and think, what's our town going to be like in 10 years? Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that you brought up the entrepreneurship and, and how it is, you do have such lower barriers of entry, but on the flip side too, you have to be thinking about who is my customer and, and how do you grow a business? So can you talk through too, like, you know, you know, I, I kind of have my opinions on ways in which that you can grow a business in a smaller town, whether that is the direct local community and economy, but also thinking about too, like, how do I grow it outside? Um, if that's the wish of the owner. So, um, so kind of talk a little bit now on the entrepreneurship side. Um, what do you, what do you see that's worked, whether that is small retail businesses, um, manufacturing? I know Iowa, we're very, um, strong agricultural state and actually agriculture has really impacted in the ways in which that our, our small towns are currently. Um, so 
can you kind of walk through too, like if there's an entrepreneur listening or, or someone that aspires to open a business, um, you know, what, what are ways in which that they can kind of first start thinking about that specifically as they're trying to grow in a small town? The first thing I would say, and I'm someone who has started a small business. I mean, it's a one person shop consulting business. Um, and I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but you know, you're not an expert in everything that you need to do to even start a small business. So I had a group of advisors that I worked with at the start. Um, and I would recommend that any small business, you know, potential startup find that core group of, of resources. And at the very least, it's the small business development centers, the SBDCs, or, or maybe it's making a call to your chamber of commerce. Or, or your county economic developer, or your council of governments who has some economic development administration revolving loan funds uh, available to them. But I would say don't sit around at night penciling out your business without having conversations with others. Um, and, and the thing is, is there are lots of folks that are operating in this sphere as um, technical assistance providers to entrepreneurs and figuring out who those technical assistance providers are um, isn't difficult because all you need to do is make that first call, whether it's to the SBDC or your chamber or the economic development group or you name it. Um, but, but it's not easy. You know, put my old USDA hat back on. Um, the reason USDA Rural Development exists is to mitigate risk. Many years ago, um, back in the New Deal, um, the federal government funded rural electrification. And they did it because the, the private sector decided rural electrification was too risky, not worth it, it was, there was going to be no return on investment. And so the federal government stepped in and did it. And the Rural Electrification Administration was the precursor organization today to what's now USDA Rural Development. But the idea that rural places need to have some sort of support to help mitigate risk is important. That's why there are so many um, loan guarantee programs for businesses that exist. Part of that is to mitigate the risk that exists for lenders. But if you're a, a small or a would-be entrepreneur in a small town, and you go to your bank and say, I've got a business concept, I want you to make me a loan, I've got a little bit of cash on hand, but I need, here's what I need from you. You, to them, are a risky proposition because of population, because of scope and scale and everything else like that. So the bank may not be willing to make that loan, even if they're a rural community bank based in your community. Um, and that's where the loan guarantees and the risk mitigation comes in. How do you make rural ventures less risky? Um, and one of the ways is by having prepared entrepreneurs who have worked with partners and resource providers and have great business concepts ready to roll. And the other is through government loan guarantees that help make a lender more willing to extend funds to help a small business. Um, it's, it's a, um, there are lots of different elements to it, but we know that from an economic development standpoint, 
that entrepreneurship leg of the stool, there was always business recruitment, business retention, and it was a two-legged stool for generations. Just in the last 20 years, that third leg of the stool of supporting entrepreneurs and building businesses from within came in, and it has been transformational. The idea that you're supporting somebody who's already in town, you don't have to recruit them. They're already invested in the community. Their kids may be in school. You may already be a patient of the doctor and the dentist and the pharmacist. But what you're doing is you're helping grow from within. And a lot of times those, those businesses that start in a small town because they're already there, those become the hubs of that, of that business moving forward as it grows. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I know I can support that because just even the organization that I work for, um, we, we clearly believe in that third leg of entrepreneurship. Uh, and I'm very biased. I come from a family of entrepreneurs and I have always thought that, you know, it's always the long game in which you build your builders and, and they're going to be those bigger companies that we all get really excited about later. Um, or they're the smaller businesses that represent the main street and, and all the different services too. So um, I appreciate you kind of spelling out that yes, um, you do need to figure out if you are starting businesses in smaller towns that it's a different risk profile to like how you would access the funding or other resources. Um, but it's great to hear that there are of course practitioners or even the USDA and how they're thinking about how to de-risk um, certain ventures throughout all of America, but specifically, um, you know, in the rural communities. And so um, I'm curious, because I've always thought about, you know, as I'm driving through a small town, um, it's really easy to do anytime you're driving across Iowa. Um, you know, how many entrepreneurs does it take to change a, to change a town? And that, to me, it kind of comes with, as you kind of alluded to the start of the conversation, you need a core of leaders. And sometimes those leaders are entrepreneurs. And I would imagine a lot of times they're at least as an entrepreneur in the room of that small town, whether it's the city council or it's creating a new project or infrastructure. So, um, you know, it's kind of a fun question, but how do you think about that? I, I takes one. Just takes one. I, I absolutely believe that because it becomes a replicable model for the next would-be entrepreneur in that town. If they have someone they can look at who's an example to them, um, then it's, see, it, it, it's a, a seeding or a, a instance. You know, you, it, and, and it doesn't have to be that that entrepreneur is planting seeds by encouraging other folks. They're simply leading by example. Um, and, and I think that I, I can think of a, a number of small towns where there is an uh, anchor small business that is doing things and other folks see it and they say, huh. Uh, and, and in a small town, chances are you can go see that person and talk to them about how they did it or what they learned through the process. Um, and, and so that initial leader doesn't even have to be an advocate. They can just be a resource or an example, but it only takes one. And that's great to hear. That's encouraging, of course. We see, we see that with, with properties in a small town downtown. Once one person fixes up their facade, mm -hmm. you know, and the, the folks next door say, first thing they say is, wow, that costs a lot of money. How'd you do it? B, they see the difference in the building that's been upgraded or, or updated, and then the, how the buildings around them sort of you know, look a little rough by comparison, and that 
they prompt them to take action. Mm -hmm. um, one other thing I'll say is that uh, is that grants are nice, but they're not free. When I was at USDA, I always had small businesses coming to me saying, where's the free money? Or I'm looking for a grant. And the answer is, first off, grants aren't easy. They're very competitive, but they're also not free because they come with time and attention and effort and a potential lifetime of quarterly reporting. So when, when we're thinking about those sorts of resources and assets that go into the development of a rural building, yes, federal and state agencies can be important partners, um, but, but it's not, they don't just give you money and tell you to go spend it wisely. Mm -hmm. They want to know every step you're going to take. Is there an example that comes to your mind as you think of specifically, you're talking about the, the, the fronts of the building mm -hmm. and, and that restoration that might go or even, um, you know, preserving buildings, especially if they're historical and, and carry a lot of um, uniqueness to that town. And so um, can you think on the top of your head, like, what's a, what's a small town that has really utilized maybe a specific grant program um, and, and maybe for those communities listening, um, ways in which that they can learn from those examples? You know, I, I think there are a number of places that have historic National Register Historic Districts in their downtown. Well, I, I mean, I'll mention my own. Grinnell has some remarkable architecture and 40-plus, you know, historically recognized buildings in its downtown. And uh, the city right now is in its third wave of facade projects, and they've done it using CDBG, uh, HUD's uh, Community Development Block Grant Program, which flows through the state. But, but CDBG, in these cases, are being used to fix up buildings. The, the property owner has to provide X amount of a percentage of the, the project, but these facades are getting redone. And, they're, and I want to say it's the city's third tranche of, of CDBG funds that have helped to do that. Other cities use CDBG. Uh, they, they may tiff it. Um, they may create other local funding sources or just kick, you know, grant monies from the city's general funds, but it, it typically, you can't cash flow a historic project, a rehab project, just by doing it, because the costs are so high uh, compared to the end value that you're gonna get. So that's where um, you know, tax credits and, and grants and, and loans, and you have to pull together lots of different sources to make that happen to fill the gap between what the cost is and what the building's actual value is going to be but at the end of the day the value to the community and i believe the value to the businesses and if there's upper story housing the folks who live upstairs has a direct impact on quality of life and the vitality of the community I like it. And um, can you spell that acronym out one more time? CDBG, Community Development Block Grant. Okay, appreciate that. That's new to me. Um, I know it's probably not new to all these communities, but but I love um, that just as an example in the way in which Grinnell is utilizing that. And of course, Grinnell has the university. Um, and, and it is kind of interesting to study, you know, even communities that have education as a, a main hub within their their community, um, you know, to me, it seems like a 
an extreme like high positive effect and impact that that has. Um, so I think it's great to mention Grinnell. Um, what about like, um, is there any like smaller town that you think of? Maybe it's under 5,000 and um, they're looking at, you know, how do we, you know, recreate the, whether it's the life back to Main Street, whether it's actually just incentivizing, you know, the business development. Um, just kind of curious. Oh, I, I mean, I just saw that Indianola um, mm-hmm. unveiled their new downtown. They just did a whole new streetscape and a street rebuild. And I want to say that their Main Street uh, south of uh, Simpson College was closed for a year while they were doing that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a good example. You know, a town like Stanton, um, which is in Montgomery County, uh, just east of Red Oak. Um, they are building by building, are doing a facade rehab. They're a very entrepreneurial place. And they have an anchor institution there that's their rural telephone cooperative. And that rural telephone cooperative has helped to redevelop a number of properties downtown and then make those properties available to small businesses. Mm -hmm. So they have a new coffee shop. Um, They have a place, uh, a a high-end restaurant that's drawing people from as far away as Council Bluffs and Omaha to eat aged steaks. Um, They've got a, a, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in Stanton, which was best known as a town that only had houses that were white. It was a Swedish community, and all the houses were painted white. And um, they had their water tower was sh- shaped like a coffee, um, coffee um, pitcher, because um, the woman from Folgers um, mm-hmm. was from Stanton. But, but again, they drive entrepreneurship, they support small businesses, and it's the anchor institution working with the, the city and the city council that's making that happen. And I like that you use anchor um, because we've talked a lot about all these different certain ingredients, you know, back to the leaders, back to making sure there's adequate infrastructure, um, but also thinking about who is that anchor, you know, and it looks different, it sounds like, for every single community. Um, so I just like how you're, you're using and recognizing that word, because it could be an institution as like Grinnell has a, a great, great university education. Um, you even mentioned Indianola and Simpson in that relationship, which is obviously a, a key institution, but thinking even outside of that, um, you know, even how a rural telephone co-op can anchor that. Um, so I appreciate that, and I think it gets people even thinking, like, who is the anchor in our community, or who are the anchors? Or who could be the anchor mm-hmm. if, if they were, you know, encouraged? Um, you know, I, I view an anchor as, as not just a major employer. I view them as an, a leader of the community. Um, our next rural summit uh, in April is going to have a breakout and it's going to be on rural hospitals as anchor institutions. You know, um, it could, we could be talking school districts. You know, they're, they're a major employer, often in a small town, the largest employer in the community. But do they also get involved in workforce development? Do they get involved in economic development? They should, um, because if they're going to recruit and retain good teachers, um, they need to be an anchor, but they also have to. Any anchor has has their in their their individual best interests at in mind by lifting up the community as a whole. 
Mm -hmm. And I'm going to now kind of shift gears to talk a little bit about you and your role. So I think throughout this conversation, you know, I've learned a lot in which you have been in rural development quite a bit. It's a passion of yours. So kind of thinking back to even like when you were growing up, even your your origin and, you know, growing up in Cleveland, um, you know, what did you aspire to be and, and kind of talk about the pathway in which you've gotten to where you are today? Um. It is, I'm probably more like a, a Gen Z or a millennial with my career path because I started out wanting to be a disc jockey and I wound up in college going into journalism and I wound up in radio in part because a lot of the people in my first journalism class wanted to be on TV. And I thought, huh, that'll be very competitive. There are, there are fewer people who want to go into radio. And I wound up in radio news and spent almost 20 years as a public radio reporter. Um, and my work as a re- reporter brought me into contact with lots of people related to public policy. And I wound up actually getting recruited to join a public policy consulting firm here in Des Moines. So that was you know, my first leap, my first career change. Then I got recruited to lead uh, a downtown development group in Grinnell. I was living in Grinnell all this time, but they recruited me to be part of that. And then that downtown development group sort of evolved into a countywide economic development group. And then someone had seen my work um, and said, well, you ought to throw your hat into the ring to be the next state director of rural development. This was after the Obama election in 2008 and I was as it turned out nominated to be the state director and appointed by the president and had this amazing experience of leading a group of public servants who every day got up and thought about rural communities and how they would serve them on behalf of the federal government and then um, when my tenure there ended it just made sense to keep doing that sort of work so you know I, I When I was in college uh, studying journalism or getting a master's in political science, I had no idea where it was going to take me. But but I always tell people that what I learned in journalism school was how to speak and how to write and how to think uh, strategically and think critically. And that pretty much is a, you know, decent tool chest to do anything. And so... um you know, can you talk about, and it might have been that journalism class, but um, what's been an influential moment or person in your life that um, has led you into, one, being an entrepreneur, consulting, um, the rural development, economic development? Um, can you kind of talk about that? So that person who wooed me away from public radio um, was my friend Tom Slater, um, now deceased, but Tom was the founder of State Public Policy Group, SPPG. He was from Council Bluffs. He had been a, he was a st- former state senator. He ran SPPG. He called it a benevolent for-profit. He was a business, but he wanted to do good things. And the sorts of clients that he took on, they, they couldn't even all pay their, you know, pay their freight for us, but it was the right thing to do. And, and Tom had that, that vision for how this company was going to work. And in fact, when uh, the end of my USDA tenure was um, coming up and I was thinking about starting this business, Tom and I had lunch and I, we talked about you know, what it was going to take. And, I, and he said to me, he said, you're going to be like me. 
you're going to do things for people and you're not going to charge them enough or you're not going to charge them at all. And the idea of being a benevolent for-profit is only good as long as you can keep the lights on. So Tom passed away a few years after that, but, but what I learned from him working for him and leaning on him as a mentor when I was getting ready to start this and watching how he interacted with people and not just clients, but people in general was, was transformational for me. And I owe a lot to Tom. I appreciate it. I love it. And, and as far as today, um, what does success look like in your role? Um, giving communities and people and places and partners um, the opportunity to thrive. I, I'm beyond the, the, the point where I need credit for anything. Um, but if I can empower somebody or some place to be successful or to give them the tools so that I'm not even part of that next step where they're doing great things, um, that, that's good. Um, but I think that building capacity is a big deal. It's, that's often what a small town really lacks the most is the capacity to make things happen. And it could be if you say, oh, there, there's money out there from the federal government or the state government or a foundation to do the stuff you want to do. Here's the application. A lot of times the person who look, who's, you're talking to is the city clerk. And she's going to say, I've got to get the city council agenda ready. I got to do this. I got to do that. I'm the only person in this town who makes things happen. And so that capacity is the barrier to them doing things or making that step or realizing that vision. So building capacity so that everything isn't always falling on that city clerk or the city manager and having a team of folks that can step up and make things happen. That sort of capacity building is, is what we're working on at the Rural Development Council. We're partnering with the Governor's Empower Rural Iowa Task Force. And I think collectively there are a lot of things going on right now that are helping communities that want to build capacity. But we're not going around telling everybody you have to do this. We're not being prescriptive. It's sort of, we'll work with anybody who seeks us out and wants to do something that currently they're not doing. Mm -hmm. And so I guess what's, what's on your wish list? You've been in this work for a while, and um, is there anything for Iowa that you, you really just would wish to see more of, or maybe we don't have it currently, but? Um, I, you know, my organization, um, lives um, on, you know, the support of, you know, a growing handful of, of um, sustaining members. Um, they contract with me for about 15 hours a week. There are some state rural development councils that have 10-person staffs that do a lot more and have the capacity to be a bigger player. I'm not sure we need that right now because we have partners at the Economic Development Authority, for example, um, through the Empower Rural Iowa Task Force, through some of our partner organizations, whether it's Farm Bureau or our utility partners or our economic development partners who are doing things. So it might be that we don't need to have a bigger footprint, but there will come a time, you know, and I'm 61 years old, 
where maybe that transitional step that the council takes in partnership with these other entities creates a something that's more formal. That's ultimately a decision for our for our board and for um, you know the, the governor and the lieutenant governor have been huge champions of empower. Uh, the legislature will be asked to invest again this year in some of those rural specific programs through empower. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, if, if, if there's somebody, um, whether it's me or Liesl Siebert at IEDA or the incoming vice president of extension who just got announced, who will come in, I think, on April 1st, who's waving their arms saying, hey, we got to think about small towns and rural places and make them part of the conversation. Um, that'll be a good thing. Yeah, and I, and I, I like that you you knew mentioned that, of course, yes, we could have a bigger footprint and that sometimes that might work better. But um, but I'm also curious, too, um, how do you measure this? Um, how do we think about that as as we are thinking, like if eventually, you know, we have a bigger ask to all these amazing resource providers and partners in our state and federally, of course, too. Um, what are ways in which that we can think about measuring this in Iowa? And if we are moving the needle within growing and creating, you know, more vibrant small towns? You know, an obvious answer would be we'd look at population. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't think population is the right barometer. Um, it's it's a and element of a of a marker. Um, maybe it's in you know um, the numbers of small businesses that are starting, or maybe it's in investment. Um, maybe it's in the interest in venture capital funds in investing in rural businesses. Um, I'm really eager to learn more about InnoVenture and the work that that they're going to be doing mm-hmm. through the state with federal funds to make strategic investments, capital um, investments in businesses, and what um, percentage of those investments come in rural places. Um, It might be in um, figuring out how many people have access to high-speed broadband, you know, at the end of this next wave of investments that currently didn't have it before, and how access to connectivity is gonna transform small towns. And, and give entrepreneurs and residents and students um, and patients of, of, of health care providers new accesses. I, again, I think it's going to, I would struggle to come up with a prescriptive list of here are the ways we're going to quantify our success uh, because it's going to depend on, you know, what are we going to look at? And there's a huge swath of areas that you could look at to measure rural vitality. But I think it's going to, you know, in the end, it's going to be if you've seen a one rural, really vital small town, you've seen one really vital small town. And, you know, to me, also what comes to mind is, you know, can you measure a growth mindset or the mindset of the town being that it, it does ultimately want to grow and, and see that change um, through those leaders that step up? So that's just something that I would kind of let you or others to kind of think about how do we measure that? Because um, it, like you said, it might not actually come down to the population um, or some other ways in which traditionally we always have measured that. So I, I've always thought a challenge for small towns is to develop a, a culture 
for that place and, and specifically to entrepreneurship. How do you develop a culture of entrepreneurship among people for whom failure is not necessarily a good thing? You know, there are generations of rural Americans, rural Iowans, if you say I failed at two or three different things, that's a black mark. Among entrepreneurs, there's an expectation of failure on sometimes multiple occasions, and it's okay. But you can build or, or support a, a, a culture that says, you know what, we like testing things out. We, we like trying new things. And even if we're not successful the first time, we'll come back and try something else again. So that, that development of culture, I think, is an opportunity, but also a big challenge. Mm-hmm. And I think that's for everyone. You know, that's something I've been really closely looking at is what is Iowa's perception of entrepreneurship? And what is that culture that either we've developed or maybe we need to increase and move, you know, move the needle on and turn it up a little bit louder? Um, and, and I appreciate you saying that, especially, you know, big or small town is, um, is allowing people to take those risks. And of course, there's ways to be prepared and maybe educated around those risks of entrepreneurship. Um, but I think it goes the same for, for wherever zip code you might be living in. So I really appreciate it. Um, so kind of closing, is there one thing that you wish you knew from last week? And then also, what's one thing you wish you knew from since you've started working in rural development? Uh, from last week, I wish I had, uh, well, maybe not known. I wish I could have put a bug in the ear of the Ohio State football coach to get a few more yards before they try to field a goal against Georgia because they could be the national champions today. Um, but I, I wish I had had, you know, going into my rural development experience, um, a better understanding from the start of um, uh, the, the strong pride that residents take in. The, I mean, I, I always knew that, that people who live in small towns are proud of their places. Um, I wish I had understood just how strong that pride is and what they can accomplish if they want to do things to make their town better. Um, they will make investments. They will pass bond levies. They will do things um, because it's the right thing to do. And I don't think I ever gave folks in rural communities enough credit for what they will take on because they're so dang proud of their place. I love it. And, you know, I can... Definitely agree with that. Just even in the town that I grew up in, Clear Lake, Iowa, we do have a lot of pride, whether that's pride in the lake and they figured out a way to dredge the lake and find the money for that. I know there's other communities across Iowa, even Storm Lake, that have done similar. And so um, pride goes a long way in rallying the whole community around it. Um, And so, um, you know, what's one thing, I guess, too, that you, if, if anyone listening, you know, were to figure out what's the one takeaway that they need to know, what would you say? Small towns are not risky ventures. Uh, There is opportunity in a rural community. Um, Smaller population does not inherently equate to increased risk. Uh, But you asked the question early on, what should a small business be doing? And that is to think as broadly as possible about their, their potential universe of customers or partners 
and technology changes everything. And if you have access to a, um, a fiber optic cable that connects you to the world at super high speeds, you ought to take advantage of it. Well, thank you, Bill. And um, you mentioned this too, and I want to kind of throw it out there for people listening. Um, April is the Rural Summit. And can you talk a little bit more about how people can get involved? Sure. Um, we'll be coming up with registration options uh, in the not too distant future. IowaRDC.org is our website for the Rural Development Council. There's a, a up the top of the of the banner there's a clicker for the rural summit we'll have an, a, an agenda up there soon um, but uh, there there's a great deal if you want to be part of a three-person team from a rural community we will cut you a deal on registration uh, but you can also attend as an individual you can be a sponsor an exhibitor um, anything but uh, again we had almost 400 people um, and this will be our seventh uh, Iowa Rural Summit, and we're looking forward to it. Awesome. Thank you. You bet. Thanks for listening to the Small Business and Startup Stories DSM podcast. Inspired by these stories, we offer a hub full of resources needed for any small business owner to grow and succeed in Greater Des Moines, Iowa at dsmpartnership.com slash business. Thanks for listening. <laughs>